Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Dr. Zorba Pastor from Zorba Pastor on Your Health is in Logan for several events presented by Utah Public Radio. And today he's my guest for the hour on this program. Dr. Zorba Pastor, of course, dispenses heart healthy recipes, down to earth advice, and the latest in medical science each week. And you can hear Dr. Zorba on your pastor on your health on UPR Sundays at noon. Of course, in this hour, you'll have the opportunity to call in and interact with uh, Dr. Pastor. You can call 800-826-1495, or you can respond by email to upraxis at gmail.com. Zerber Pastor is a physician for the Dalai Lama, meets with Emmanuel at the Mayo Clinic. Dalai Lama also wrote the introduction to Zerber Pastor's book, The Longevity Code, your personal prescription for a longer, sweeter life. Dr. Zerber Pastor, following the news.
Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Public Radio's Dr. Zorba Pastor is in Logan in northern Utah for several days uh, for a series of events presented by Utah Public Radio. And we have him for the hour here on Access Utah. We're pleased to welcome in uh, Dr. Pastor. You know him, of course, from uh, Zorba Pastor on Your Health, which shares on Utah Public Radio Sundays at noon. And uh, Dr. Pastor um, has a, uh, a lot in his bio. He's a Chicago native. He's traveled and studied extensively in Asia and India, where he volunteered his medical expertise and services for the Tibetan refugee population in the northern Indian Himalayas. He mentors medical students as an assistant clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine, University of Wisconsin-Madison, and he maintains a busy clinical practice in Oregon, Wisconsin. Dr. Zorba Pastor, welcome to the program. It's great to be here. I love coming to Utah. I've been in Logan before. It's a wonderful, wonderful place. People have been so friendly and so interested in health and medical care. It's really always great to be here. And thanks, thanks so much for inviting me. And uh, you've got your Aggie hat. That's, that's I do. Yeah. I yeah. do have my Aggie hat. And I also went to YouTube and I saw my. I saw the Aggie cheer. <laughs> and then I learned what the Aggie cheer was about. Yeah. And it was really, it was quite interesting. Loved looking at the Aggies jump up and down at you know the football games. And right. Stuff. It was right. Really fun watching. Um, let's. Uh, we're we're opening the phone lines and email for you. Here is your opportunity. Uh, you have opportunity weekly to to. Uh, get your question into Dr. Zarba, but here a special opportunity. He's right here with us on Access Utah, and uh, you can call us at 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or uh, upraxcess at gmail.com is our email, upraxcess at gmail.com, and we have Dr. Zarba with us uh, for the hour. Uh, here's a question, uh, Dr. Zarba, from uh, Darlene. This is question for Dr. Zarba. I'm an 83-year-old woman. I'm in relatively good health and walk daily on a treadmill and also ride an Airdyne bicycle. I mentioned to my primary care physician that I'm experiencing a loss of balance. I do not feel steady on my feet anymore. He suggested physical therapy. Can physical therapy help such a condition? Well, the answer is yes, and uh, and it, it brings up an excellent point. Uh, as we age, we have to really look at three things that we need with exercise. We need aerobic strength, and if you're on a treadmill and on the airdyne bike, you're using aerobic strength. We need physical strength, which is often done uh, with weights. You know, uh, as you get older, the weights get smaller and smaller. You know, when you're younger, you can often lift rather heavy weights, and as you get older, the heavy, the light weights become the heavy weights, and the Heavy weights become a distant, a distant memory. But the third thing is balance, and balance is a huge issue. The only reason that we really care about osteoporosis is because it makes our bones soft. We may fall, break our hip, and cause problems. But the real issue is balance, and we often don't attend to that. And so going to physical therapy, getting an evaluation from a physical therapist can be excellent because they will tell you what exercises to do from balance, uh, which sort of programs or number of senior centers that actually have balanced classes, the Y and other places have balanced classes. They'll also look and see if you need anything for gait assist. Do you need a walker? Do you need a cane? Do you need it on a temporary basis? Do you need it on a permanent basis? Physical therapists are great for really laying out a program that it works for you. And sometimes two or three visits are important. Sometimes it's 10 visits. Sometimes it's only one visit. But as you get older, making sure you don't fall is a major issue. Now, I know that because I come from the state of Wisconsin 
Wisconsin, the great state of Wisconsin, and we happen to be number one in the country in falls in senior citizens, and no one can quite get a handle on it. There are lots of jokes about the fact that we drink beer and that's why we fall, but it turns out not to be the case because in Minnesota, the beer consumption is actually about the same as in, as in Wisconsin. So getting back to the question, the answer is yes, PT is right for you. Hmm. We do have a call, so Dr. Zerber, I'll alert you to, to put your headphones on. Hold on. Should have done that before we went on air, but you've got your headphones now. Uh, so <laughs> Dr. Zorba's got his headphones it's always, on. It's always so. the case when you get somewhere and you go, oh, gosh, I should have done this before. That's right. Had to reach over and get the headphones for Dr. Zorba. So we have uh, Carl in St. George. Carl, glad you called. Go ahead with your question. Hey, th- good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. You know, I've been uh, listening to Dr. Zorba, pastor, for years. Well, thank and you. he has such thank a you. doggone pleasing personality. Oh. And I'd like to know just uh, where he's from. I'd like to know about him, where he's from, what kind of a name is Zorba Pastor, and can you actually call on the phone and make an appointment with him and go in and have a bunion removed or a a diagnosis on health? I don't know how he squeezes so many hours out of a day. Well, thank you. But I'd just like you to talk a little bit about yourself, Pastor. Well, I was born... Thanks for that, Carl. Appreciate it. I was... Born and raised in Chicago, and then uh, came up to Matt, went up to Madison, Wisconsin, walked into the student union because I was not happy at the University of Illinois. We have a beautiful student union. The Memorial Union in Madison overlooks Lake Mendota. We've got five lakes around Madison. And I said, gee whiz, I think this is home. And that was it. I never lived in Chicago again. My relatives are down there, but moved to Madison, joined a clinical practice with Dr. Kellogg and Dukershine in a small town, Oregon, not Oregon, that's the state, outside of Madison. Kellogg came there in 49 and Duke in 52. And uh, I joined there, raised my four kids in that wonderful small town. Uh, They're spread out all over the country now, and I just love it. I teach at the university, do other things. And yes, I'm part of a practice. We've got our practice in the same town. There are five of us who practice there, some docs, some PAs. We're part of a a large multi-specialty group that uh, does well in and out of Madison, well meaning we've got lots of docs to do stuff. So I can go around and I can do things for public radio stations. I have that great opportunity. Uh, And one of the reasons I got into this in the first place is I was sitting in my office one day telling somebody to quit smoking. By the way, Utah leads the country in smoking cessation. You guys are awesome. You have the lowest smoking rates in the country because it is socially not acceptable to smoke, and it's been that way for years, and that's why your rate is exactly the opposite of West Virginia and Mississippi that have the super high rates. But anyway, I'm sitting in my office one day going, telling somebody to quit smoking, and I thought, gosh, that must be, I must be a better way to do this. And then that turned into a radio interview that ultimately turned into my, you know, my radio show. And I do stuff on TV and I have a medical column in a bunch of newspapers because mm. I really want to change people. I want to change them in a way that happens to affect their health. So, mm-hmm. so thank you very much. How do I fit things in? Well, uh, I've 
I mean, I was in a small town, so I could see my kids all the time. I didn't have to commute. That's a, that's a big issue. I have a lot of energy, and I don't watch television. <laughs> <laughs> that's how you. That's how you're able to do a lot. Although of things, I do yes. update Facebook, mm-hmm. Facebook for the radio station, <laughs> but I don't watch it. I don't look at Facebook. And uh, you're engaged in that today. You're you're documenting. Yeah, your I day thought I'll today. document my whole day on Facebook. That yeah. would be that would be a fun thing to do. Uh, thank you, thank you for your compliments. Appreciate so, uh, so the name Zorba Pastor. Well, you know, if I told you, I'd have to kill you. Yeah. So that's it. No, it came, it came from a younger, uh, let's say more, uh, uh, it came from younger days. It's, it's a name that I really got in college, dancing on tables in oh. times that are, uh, that that were different times. So it's a nickname that became that really became my name. Oh, and I, I see. knew I, see. I knew that it became my name when my father started to write birthday checks. He would say, "Take Penny out for dinner." He'd write a check for twenty five dollars, and I thought, "Okay, that's a nice dinner. I could probably spend a little bit more." And he started to write Zorba. So, but it's been my name forever. Oh. In my name forever. Picked it up in college then, or earlier. I picked it up yeah. in college. Picked yeah. up one of my one of the good habits I picked up in college. <laughs> college is always a tumultuous yeah. a tumultuous time yeah. where you you sift and winnow to try to pick up the good habits. Yeah. But the name has served me well. Uh, so to Carl's question, you you do still practice? Oh yeah, family medicine. Yeah, I'm uh, uh, in my group a little bit more than half time. So I'll be going back on Tuesday. I'll if he wants to come to my office. We probably have some openings on Wednesday okay. and Thursday. <laughs> we always keep same day appointment openings, but I do, and I love yeah. it to see new patients, old patients. Uh, I would not give that up. Yeah. Uh, now it's interesting because I will be seventy this year. A number of my friends. Um, have retired, uh, and uh, I was thinking about this the other day. How do and they say to me, "When are you going to retire?" So the answer is, I'm 70 year old, years old, but I'm only halfway through halfway through my work. Mm-hmm. So you know, I plan to live to 140. So All right. I'll be there for a while. 140. We'll look forward to that. <laughs> um, and plans to continue. You and Tom to continue the show. Yeah, for well, indefinitely. Well, it's, for it's it's kind of amazing. The show has continued. We've been on for more than 20 years. Uh, our uh, you know, the number of people listen is about the same. We've got 125,000 people that listen across the country, lots of podcast listeners also, and it's really kind of amazing because public radio shows, you know, like all radio shows, they sort of have a lifespan, but our lifespan has continued. And I think it's because we talk about personal things and people are always interested in personal, you know, personal stories. And we try to do a good job. We try to be respectful, understanding, move interesting medical information uh, that I, you know, that I think, you know, is important. And as I said, I hope to continue this because I'm only halfway through my career. Yeah. <laughs> and you've uh, you've branched out, of course. You you uh, found your way to radio, and you're I think you're you do some television. I do, do newsletter. I do TV. Do... I have a newsletter called Top Health that I that I edit, and then uh, the newspaper column is interesting. One of the reasons I got into radio is I can't write now. Uh, although I do have a column in a book. In the Chicago Public Schools, if you misspelled one word, it was a B. Two words, it was a C. Three words, it was a D. And I came from a family of non-readers and non-spellers. So I was taught by Miss Schutte, my English teacher in elementary school, who, and she said, Mr. Pastor, you just can't write at all. And so I believed her until one day a few years ago, the uh, Madison, uh, our newspaper in Madison, the Wisconsin State Journal, said, would you like to write a column? And I said, no. And they said, why don't you try? And now I'm really pleased it. I've, mm-hmm. I've learned you can actually teach yourself a new skill 
and do it, and I can now write medical columns, and I actually like doing it. Mm-hmm. So I found that very interesting. And and my take home from that is, if you think you can't do something, you're probably wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're probably wrong. You probably can't do it, and never give up. Mm-hmm. So uh, what's the overall goal? You 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 want to. Subtitle of your book, Longer, Sweeter Life? What, yeah, longer, uh, well, what, Longer, uh, Sweeter Life is, you know, if you have length without sweetness, why mm-hmm. bother? You know, I mean, why should you quit smoking? You know, if you really like smoking, what would be the reason? Well, you have to have hope that life has a future for you. And that turns out to be a key issue. Uh, if you don't have hope, if you don't think the future has something for you, you don't take action. And so that's really where social relationships come into being. Uh, it, it's really where the people around you really can make a difference because they often give you hope. And hope is really interesting because hope is not a plan. I mean, hope is great. It's wonderful. I hope to do this. It doesn't work. So when patients come into my office and I talk to them and I say, why don't you quit smoking? Why don't you quit drinking? And they go, well, I hope to do that. And I go, well, hope doesn't count. I mean, it's great that you hope to do it, but what's your plan? And uh, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you a very interesting story. So it's medical school. Picture this: it's 1971. I'm in medical school, University of Illinois, and uh, I'm in uh, I'm, I'm in an apartment with a bunch of other people, and <clears throat> I had no trouble at, in Madison. It's six weeks in medical school. You memorize. You don't have to think very much initially. You just have to memorize things, and I'm not that good. And so there were in memorizing, and I wasn't really working as hard as I should have. I didn't know that at the time. So a six weeks test doesn't count, but it, you're going to have the twelve week test that really counts. There are eight subjects, and four of them it's pass fail I missed passing by one question so I thought well I'm going to have to work <clears throat> so I thought okay I'll do something but the dean calls me in Dean Ann Peterson we called her Iron Maiden and uh, had me come into the office sat me down and she said Dr. Pastor no one ever called me Dr. Pastor before I'm a freshman medical student she said well I'm looking at your grades your grades were good but you know you didn't do well in these four subjects you missed it by one question and I said well yeah I sh- I'm, I'm going to have to work on that and and she said when are you going to do that and I said this weekend and she looked at me and she said Dr. Pastor do you want to do you want to take this year again do you want to repeat this year and I said no and she said tonight and then she pointed a finger and said, out, kick me out of the office. I thought, oh, my God, i got to do something tonight. And I started, you know, doing something that evening, immediately improved things. And I never saw her again until graduation, at which time she handed me my diploma and said, congratulations. <laughs> that was my plan. Very good. <laughs> Let's uh, go to break. We have with us uh, Dr. Zorba Pastor from Zorba Pastor on Your Health. You hear his uh, program weekly uh, here on UPR, Sundays at noon. Uh, he's been on the radio for a long time, uh, does some television, does news, newsletters, um, uh, newspaper as well. Yes. He's trying to get the, the word out about health. And uh, we have him in studio for the hour, and uh, we hope that you'll take advantage of this opportunity to respond to Dr. Zorba, interact with him with your question or comment to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, or 1-800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. Uh, I want to ask uh, Dr. Pastor uh, always about the, the Dalai Lama and his work, uh, Dr. Pastor's work uh, for, for Tibetans. Um, also, uh, 
we want to talk about opioids. That's a, that's a very serious oh, uh, yes, problem. Oh, yes, very much. And uh, I think the the very latest, you're, you you have your finger on the pulse, and maybe you can rebuild some of the latest oh, it, studies. It is, yeah. <coughs> it's a major issue. Yeah. Uh, major issue in our state, major issue in your state. You have uh, you know a great problem with opioids and, of course, with, with methamphetamines and other things. So our state has recently passed some interesting rules. Now, let me give some background. Um, I've talked about pain and suffering for many, many years. Um, I went around the country, actually talked about uh, the fact that opioids do not addict people as much as we think. I was wrong. And uh, uh, pain is the fifth vital sign. Uh, I was not part of that movement, but it was a big movement by the Joint Committee on Hospital Accreditation that we should do temperature, pulse, blood pressure, respiratory rate, and are you in pain? And if you're in pain, treat the pain, which, of course, is true. But that led to more opioid prescriptions, hydrocodone and oxycodone, and large amounts. We never thought about prescribing in a small amounts. I would say, well, I'll give you 30 tablets. You've got acute pain. Put it up on the shelf, and if you've got bad pain again, like you injure yourself, you use it. And the answer was, that was wrong. And that produced an enormous amount of opioids, really, in uh, people's cabinets, and then produced what we now see is a tremendous opioid uh, epidemic. So in the state of Wisconsin, there were some laws that were changed that initially I looked at and said, wait a minute, I think this is a lot for the state to step in, but I'm now on the other side of that. And the law is, if we are giving any chronic opioid prescriptions, we have to look at something called the EPPMD, which basically looks to see whether or not they're getting prescriptions from other people before we prescribe. We have to document that actually on there. And then we have to take our patients who are chronic opioids and we have to develop a plan on how we're going to reduce the opioids that they're on. Now, What's interesting is I have patients who are stable. Uh, we do periodic drug tests. We've been doing that for years to make sure they're not taking um, any, uh, you know, any drugs such as cocaine and so on. Uh, but I, I've kept them on opioid prescriptions because they've been functioning. The medical board in Wisconsin has said, that's not good enough. You have to try them on less medication and see if they function. So I've got people, just the other day in my office, I had a patient who I started this about about two months ago. had been in chronic opioids for years. I said, we have to reduce you by 10% a week. I'm going to see you in two weeks and see you in four weeks and see how you're doing. And based on the latest medical research, you may get off of this or you may be on a lower amount and your pain may be the same. Now, this is a woman who who is still in pain. She's on it, but she's functioning. Well, she's now on one-tenth the amount of opioids she was on before, and her pain's about the same. And it sort of shocks me, because it means that I have not done a good job as a physician, neither a lot of other physicians, not just in my group, but across the country. And we've kept, pa- kept people on chronic opioids when, in fact, they didn't need to be on it, and we have been negligent in reducing them because they've been stable. In other words, they're doing well, they're on the opioids, they're stable. Why should we reduce them? Because when you start to reduce them, you get withdrawal from the opioids, and it's painful. So when you reduce the amount for two to three days and up for a week, you're in more pain, but you're in pain from the withdrawal of the opioid, not necessarily from why you're taking the opioid itself. And I've had great success. I've had people who have gotten off their medications, who have been on them for years, and they feel better, they feel brighter, and they feel better. And, and then I have some other people who will have problems, but my guess is within my practice, probably 90% of the people will either be off their medications or on less medication. And then I'll have a small cohort of people who really need these medications. There are people who really
really need to be on chronic opiates. No, no doubt about it. But this is a game changer in medicine. And the reason is we have 50,000 people a year now who are dying of opioid overdoses. It's in the, it's in the bloodstream. We're in the middle of an epidemic. Uh, I want to go one step further on this. We have seen these epidemics before. When I first started medicine, we had the epidemic of simply heroin, not hydrocodone and oxycodone. It wasn't in the, it, you know, it wasn't out there as much. And uh, and there was a book that I read that showed that morphine and opioid epidemics occur once every 30 to 40 years. And if we look back uh, to m- when morphine was first synthesized from opium, that's about the same. So we're in the middle of this 30-year epidemic. And the scary thing is this. When the epidemic tends to recede in opioids, the epidemic that follows it is cocaine. So opioids, when young people see that opioids kill, which they're seeing right now, uh, they often stop using opioids, and they're the ones that fuel the epidemic. It's fueled by young people. And when they see death, they, they stay away from it. But often stimulants such as methamphetamine and cocaine will often follow the opioid epidemic. So I'm, I'm concerned that that may be the case, and I think we have to address that at the same time. Mm-hmm. How how do we address that? You, you're saying the you know, medical profession is taking the lead on the on the opioids. Uh, well, I think we address how do by we address first, cocaine. First of all, uh, first of all, realizing talking about the fact that it's not just opioids; it's cocaine, it's methamphetamine. How do we get it out of the you know out of sort of the bloodstream of our society? Uh, and then, if we look at people that often use opioids, they're often young people who get it out of a cabinet. So it's a matter of taking those pills, locking them up, so they're just not available. For, you know, for eyes, you know, eyeballs that come in into grandma or grandpa's or their parents' cabinet. But I think it's education. To me, it begins with education. The middle is education, and the end is education. And I think educating young people as to the perils of this make a difference because it starts often when people are young, when especially when young men young men suffer from a potentially terminal disease that I call testosterone dementia, where testosterone <laughs> runs through their bloodstream and they do wild and crazy things. And I think I think education education makes a difference. There are other issues with the opioid epidemic that really have to do with social issues, a lack of jobs, money, all of those other issues. But I, I think it always boils down to education. Mm. Parents talking to their kids. Parents talking to their kids mm. all the time. Where do you think we are on the opioid epidemic? Are we... Are we I think we're at the high point. At the high point, we're I think we're not we're not declining yet. Mm-hmm. But I think the changes, for instance, in the Wisconsin law, and we have a, uh, it's very interesting. We have a very a conservative legislature in Wisconsin. We're sort of conservative, liberal. We're always right on the border. So one year it'll be conservative, the next year it'll be liberal, and so on. Uh, but this was, I think, a very important conservative agenda that was supported also by the liberals within the state. In other words, it was bipartisan, which is unusual in this. Day and age with many things. It was bipartisan because both conservatives and liberals had either friends, relatives, or knew of people who actually died in the opioid epidemic. And they said, we have to move the state medical society and the state licensing board in the right way, and we've got to shake things up. And they did by changing the law. They shook things up so that we physicians must take this in a much more serious way. And I think that basically is moving it forward quicker. So uh, at first, as I said, I was uh, I was pushed back by the state actually saying, well, you shouldn't interfere with my with my license and how I'm prescribing it. Now I have the complete other view now that I've seen how this actually works and I'm saying, go for it. You actually are making a change. And that's a society change. That's why it's happening. Mm-hmm. 
Let's take a break. When we come back, we have uh, three emails uh, ready to go. We'll uh, pose these to Dr. Zarba Pastor, and uh, you can call as well. The number is 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. We have Dr. Zarba Pastor from Zarba Pastor on Your Health, which uh, I'll remind listeners is heard weekly on UPR Sundays at noon. He's in Logan for several events presented by Utah Public Radio, and we have him for the hour on Access Utah. UPRAxis at gmail.com or 800-826-1495 to interact with Dr. Zorba Pastor right here. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Culligan Water of Logan, serving Cache Valley for more than 66 years, providing Culligan bottled water, whole home systems, soft and conditioned water, Hey, Culligan Man service from the man in blue. Details at CulliganLogan.com. Welcome to Science by the Slice. USC researcher Tim Gilbertson says certain fats activate receptors in our bodies that make sweet and salty foods taste better. This may account for our love of potato chips and chocolate. Craving and storing fat was critical for our Paleolithic ancestors' survival, but creates a formidable health challenge in our current era of plentiful food and leisure. Gilbertson says our current obesity epidemic is fueling an increase in such modern-day scourges as diabetes, heart disease, and cancer. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu slash science. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, you here, a Dr. Zorba Pastor on Zorba Pastor on Your Health, uh, weekly here on UPR, Sundays at noon. A uh, longtime uh, radio physician. He has a, uh, a family practice uh, in Oregon, Wisconsin. He's also on the television, newspaper, and newsletters, uh, trying to get the, the word out on uh, healthy living. And uh, we have him here uh, for another half hour, right here on Access Utah. And uh, we hope that if you would like, you will get your question or comment to him by email to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com, or by uh, phone. Our toll-free number is 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. Here is a question, uh, Dr. Pastor, from Chad, who says, I'm wondering from the view of a medical professional, what is the effect of vaping on one's health? Well, uh Vaping is a very important issue. So first of all, there are a few things. Uh, More and more teenagers vape. That's bad. Why is it bad? Well, whenever you vape, whenever you take anything into your lungs other than pure air, it has the risk that it's potentially dangerous to your lungs, period. No doubt about it. So when you're vaping, you've got a chemical in your body not regulated by the FDA. There's no regulation at all. There's evidence that some of the vaping liquids have heavy metals that you're inhaling into your body and you may be absorbing into your body. Uh, since there's no regulation, they often have, they, they do have nicotine, and nicotine is there because nicotine is an addictive substance. And of course, uh, the Mormons and the LDS Church have really always taken the lead that nicotine is bad, and the answer is, you know, in terms of smoking, the answer is nicotine is bad. We, you know, anything that that addicts you is by is by definition bad. So, 
Uh, the FDA, which wants to regulate it, has minimal regulation. They want to regulate it so that uh, people under the age of 21 can't get it in many states. There should be state laws that do that, just like cigarettes, to basically reduce it. But, the, but now the question then is, is vaping better than smoking for people who can't quit smoking? That's kind of the other issue. And how do we approach it as physicians if we go vaping is bad? Uh, and there are studies that show that vaping will help some people get off tobacco. And vaping is probably healthier than tobacco. It doesn't matter what the tobacco is. I have people who say, well, I'm using organic tobacco. It doesn't have additives. It's better. And I go, well, it's actually not better. It's tobacco. The the additives may be bad for you, but that's adding bad to bad. Tobacco is bad by any definition. So it it may be for some people they vape and they're off cigarettes. And is it healthier? I would say the answer is probably. I wouldn't say it is. And I wouldn't say, I'd say, probably maybe because the reality is it takes 20 to 40 years to get lung cancer when you're smoking. And so we won't know for 20 to 40 years what the side effects of vaping is. We do know, for instance, that um, Pfizer, which was uh, a company involved with making insulin, they were developing a product called inhaled insulin. So the idea was instead of injecting yourself, you take a a vaporizer and you would inhale the insulin. Great idea. Uh, I did clinical research and we were part of the project. And the problem was people who were actually in the project, they discovered were developing lung disease. And so if they were engaged and inhaling, insi- uh, uh, inhaling insulin, they had to end up getting a long pulmonary function test every six months to make sure that it didn't start establish- you know, changing their pulmonary function. Well, we don't know about vaping. And I only give that as an example of, here it was an idea, free yourself from the needle, inhale insulin, and it turned out insulin was, was actually causing problems in the lungs. I don't know what's in the liquid. It's a problem. That's my long answer. They're, they're, well, good answer. Uh, here's uh, next up is uh, Emily. Uh, she uh, uh, was responded by uh, by email. This is what Emily says. Hello, Zarba. Uh, welcome to Logan. I've enjoyed listening to you for some time now. I've Thank been you. struggling with my thyroid since I became pregnant with my son uh, 18 years ago. I started out on uh, 180... Um, micrograms. Micrograms, thank you mm-hmm. for that. Uh, Synthroid. I uh, did well. Uh, then my doc took me down to 125 micrograms mm-hmm. because he was worried about my weight loss. I wasn't worried, she says parenthetically. My insurance changed, so I was forced to take the generic uh, levothyroxine. Uh, things have gone good. downhill. You're good at since. pronouncing things. With, with, with your help. With your help. Uh, things have gone downhill mm-hmm. since, uh, says Emily. I tried uh, that for 10 years or so until the last five years I've been putting on weight despite eating a rather healthy, balanced diet. I tried Armour Thyroid for three years and it made things worse. I specifically asked my doc to put me back on uh, Synthroid uh, 150 uh, micrograms for the last five months. My my energy is improving. My bowel movements are becoming more regular as I've had years and years of painful constipation. However, the problem is I'm a runner. I run for two or three times a week, about 15 miles plus a week. My heart rate is going through the roof. I'm 38, 5 feet 5, 155 pounds. I usually weigh between 130, 135. Uh, Lately, I've become very winded. My heart rate will easily go up above 180 after a quarter-mile sprints. I appreciate Mm-hmm. Appreciate the regularly uh, regularity the synthroid is bringing back to my body. However, I can't uh, have uh, heart rate getting incredibly high. Could the high dose of synthroid be contributing to this? Do you advise a stress test? Could uh, ketogenic diet help with my hyperthyroidism? Thanks for all you do, she says. 
Well, first of all, the way uh, the way that we regulate thyroid, which uh, seems to be quite efficient, I would say greater than 90% of the time, is by measuring something called TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone. And we have a range. If it's too high, it, it goes in the opposite. It, it measures the opposite of what the hormone is. But it turns out if you give too much thyroid replacement medication, you run a risk of osteoporosis. You may lose weight, but it's not the way to lose weight. In fact, that was actually what they used to do back in the 50s. If they wanted to have you lose weight, they would give you thyroids because it was increased metabolism. But it turned out it was bad for your bones and bad for your heart. So you want to get your TSA in, TSH in the right range, not too low, not too high. That's number one. That's number two. That's number three. And if there's a doubt, what you do is you take the TSH and you repeat it six weeks later, 12 weeks later. So you've got a couple of measurements that will actually that will actually make a difference. So that's the that's the first and most important thing. The next question is, you know, the maximal heart rate that we get is the way we measure our maximal heart rate is 220 minus your age, uh, and that's your maximal heart rate. So the maximal heart rate for somebody who's 40 is roughly 180, and that's what her that's what our pulse is up to. And generally, for aerobic conditioning, we say go to 80% of your maximal heart rate. So that would be, you know, that would be roughly 40 minus 180, we'll say. So it should be around 140 or 150. If it's that high, the question is, is there something else going on? Can't answer that on the radio. That's the question. Do you need a stress test? Stress test can answer a lot of things, whether or not something is going on. Now, from the weight point of view, Weight is very complex in America. It's not just due to thyroid replacement. It's calories, calories, calories. But the problem is we lose 1% of our muscle mass every year. So you may be eating the same number of calories that you did 10 years ago, but you weigh more because basically you're not using your muscles as much because you don't have as much muscles. So you've always got to look at cookies. Um, and I want to give you a, an interesting side. So Trader Joe's, I know you are not blessed with the Trader Joe's in your but in Madison, Wisconsin, we do have a Trader Joe's. And I like their Trader Joe's. They're little cookies. They're called Dunkers. You have them with coffee. And I'd have three or four. And then one day I read the label. And I realized that four Dunker cookies was a sub at Subway with the typical sub that I would get in Subway in terms of calories. So I look at it now. I bring that in to patients and I go, which is more satisfying, the sub at Subway or these four cookies? So read those labels, you would be surprised at how many concentrated calories you're getting. Hmm. Good luck. Good luck, uh, Emily. It sounds like Emily's uh, being proactive and uh, trying to do uh, everything she can, so appreciate that question. Um, next up is Glenn. Glenn says, good morning. I only have one suggestion for the good doctor. Um, let's see. Um, on your show, you do several things I enjoy, uh, quacking up and the grammar police. Uh, for these segments, you play a little bumper music, which seems to be customized to the segment from a popular song. This I like. However, I've been waiting for your production team to manipulate a particular song by the 80s supergroup, the police, called Every Breath You Take. It's fertile ground for the grammar police segment. <laughs> uh, he, he goes on to say, thank you for your web help on um, sciatica, among other things. I have... Uh, uh, I think I have a chronic uh, terminal uh, case, but the exercises, uh, sketches help greatly. Welcome back to Utah, says Glenn. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. I'll have to listen to that, please. Every breath you take. Every breath you to, take, I'll, yeah. I'll have, to, have to tell that to my, to my producer. <laughs> I, I particularly enjoy that segment as well, the grammar police. Yeah. Oh, they're wonderful. They're yeah. always, you know, so nitpicky, but always so friendly, those grammar yeah, yeah, police, yeah. you know. 
I've never seen their uniforms. I, I, I can't imagine <laughs> weapons. <laughs> that's, that's right. I'm trying to imagine that as well. Um, but uh, you know, in, in the world of public radio, you've you've got the you got the grammar police. I've got them. That's right. Yeah. Always always at my back. Always correcting my English. You know, th- thank them. I yeah. always thank them. Uh, next up is an email uh, from Joanna. Joanna says, Dr. Pastor, we're always so excited to see you here in Cache Valley. Thank you for coming. I would have happily joined you yesterday for some skiing at Beaver Mountain. That's right. You were oh, on the right. mountain. It was you? great. Awesome. Awesome spring skiing. I loved it. I love mm-hmm. skiing. And I was up there with Tom from the station, and we had a wonderful day. I mean, the snow changed. Every run, the snow seemed to change, but it was, it was great. Great, great place to ski. Loved it. Excellent. Uh, so she says, I would have loved to have joined you, but unfortunately I had a skiing accident last oh. weekend, ruptured my ACL and MCL. Oh, wow. And likely have some medical... Uh, Meniscal damage uh, to uh, to boot. Uh, the MRI is on deck. Luckily, in this area, we have a number of great orthopedists and sports medicine docs. I have seen a sports medicine specialist already and was pleased with his bedside manner and how he explained my injury, surgery, and treatment, and what to expect for physical therapy. My question is this. Do you feel as though there is a distinct difference between having ACL reconstruction with a younger doc versus an older one? I've had many people suggest uh, I see someone who's done hundreds if not thousands of ACL reconstructions because, quote-unquote, they've seen it all. Well, I've seen a bit of uh, newer research that suggests that younger docs may have more, um, parentheses, no pun intended, cutting-edge uh, techniques, <laughs> get your pun now, that may lead to faster recovery times and better overall outcomes. I'm 39 years old, participate in a variety of endurance sports, so want to do whatever I can to ensure quick recovery and return to strength and stamina that will allow me to continue enjoying the outdoors for many, many years to come. Any suggestions uh, you may have are welcome. That's uh, Joanna. Well, that particular question comes up quite often. Do you go to somebody who has done a lot of them or go to somebody who, who is newly trained? So there, there are a couple of ways to look at this. First of all, if it's something unusual, and ACL reconstruction is not usual, it's the bread and butter of what orthopedic surgeons go to. But let's say it's something unusual and, and a physician, a surgeon only does it once a year, twice a year, maybe three times a year. Then you really want to go to somebody who does it all the time. And to me, that's where you then go to a specialized place where they're doing it all the time so they've seen it they understand it and they understand the complications in the case of ACL meniscus and other reconstructions this is what orthopedic surgeons do so the answer is neither the younger person nor the older person is the right person to go to what you want to do is you want to go to somebody who you know who has good results so how do you evaluate that Sometimes it's not that easy. If it's a medical group that has a good reputation in town, that's often a good way to do it. You know, if you know somebody who has seen that surgeon and they said, look, I went to this surgeon. I was very pleased with what they were doing. They explained things. I had a good outcome. I think that's a, that's a good example. Now, I'll give you an example for me. I was in California. I was uh, at the bottom. I just come from Nepal and Tibet for a month. I was at the bottom of a dog park, and I fractured my ankle. I had uh, I had a, a fractured ankle. I had a trimillionaire fracture, which, by the way, I reduced myself on me in the field. <laughs> I looked at this really? and I said, "This is really painful. I know how to do this." So I actually, and I'm a wimp. And I said, "I got to do this." So I was actually reduced my ankle in the field. Went to the hospital, but I had to make a decision. Was I going to get my surgery there in Oakland at a hospital called Alta Bates, or was I going to come back to my hospital in Madison, Wisconsin? Hmm. 
I had to decide what I was going to do. Uh, I had uh, did not. They they asked me how much pain I was in. They asked me if I wanted an opioid. I said no, because I knew if I had that on board, I would not be able to make a decision. So I had to decide if this guy, the orthopedic surgeon on call, that's who I was getting, was going to do it. Uh, and so uh, I asked the people around me in the hospital. I asked the, asked the, the x-ray tech. I asked the nurse. But then I decided I'm going to ask the ER doc. And when I asked the ER doc whether or not they would they would do this, I know what my question is. I'm going to look at her in the eyes, ask her the question, and get her answer. Part of her answer is going to be the pause. You know, so I looked. She came in the room and she said, You've got, "I knew I had a fractured ankle. You're going to need surgery." Doctor Lamont uh, Triton is on, and uh, he can do the surgery for you. He's going to come in and look at you. And I looked at her and I said, "Would you have him operate on you or your son?" And she looked at me right away and she said, "Without a doubt." Hmm. So there was no pause because I don't know anything about the hospital. Without a doubt, and I looked her right in her eyes to see what her pupils look like. So when people are concentrating, their pupils get smaller, and they got smaller. So I knew it was the right question. Then he came in, and I'm going to talk to him and make another evaluation. And he said, "Look, I can't. I don't have to do this surgery. I'd like that idea." He said, if you go back, what we have to do is we'll put you in a, you know, in something that's like a cast. You'll have to elevate it on the plane, and then they won't operate on you for a week because it's going to swell up more going back. And then I made my decision. I was, I like the guy. I didn't want to wait a week to have the surgery. He did a wonderful job. He was a young guy, and he was a hand surgeon. That's mm-hmm. where most of his work was done, but he was on call one in four. He said, I do a lot of these. I'm on one in four, so he did a lot of them. He met all my criteria. So I hope that helps you mm-hmm. decide because there's no black and white in a decision such yeah, as this. Yeah, That is a good question. I, I've, uh, I have a 12-year-old dentist. Mm-hmm. Uh, a twelve-year-old very, very, dentist, very young dentist, um, <laughs> and I had to make that decision. He had more cutting, had to evaluate him, and he he does a great job. I I, I enjoy him, you know. But uh, <laughs> a twelve-year-old dentist. Uh, <laughs> uh, right. But but I, I I was a little nervous first time, you know. Sure. Of course, uh, went in because yeah. he's you know just fresh out of yeah, dental school. Of course. Um, let's uh, go next uh, to uh, Danny. Danny says. Uh, this uh, email is for Zorbot Opioids. So we've talked about this. So let's see what uh, she says. Considering the opioid ed- epidemic in the U.S. right now, I wonder why uh, doctors are so quick to prescribe drugs. It seems like a quick fix. What are your thoughts? Well, it is a quick fix, but you come in and you have a fractured ankle. You want a quick fix. You want to be able to tolerate your pain. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, for people with chronic pain, there are, there are only so many things we can do, and that's where uh, where we did that. You know, if you have a, a slipped disc and the pain isn't better, we often give medications to help with the pain. A lot of times, it takes 12 to 16 weeks for the pain to go away. With a slipped disc, that's often the case. The real issue is what are the right drugs to use, and then getting a plan, and the plan has to include what are you going to do for rehab, what are your uh, what are you looking for in terms of rehabilitation and improvement, and then if you need to step in with medications, what are the minimal medications with minimal side effects that will work? So, for instance, Motrin has minimal side effects, and it works, and it may allow you to function. Uh, when I go on the ski hill, in fact, last night after the ski hill, I have pain in my right wrist because I've got uh, I have arthritis in my right wrist, which is uncomfortable. So when I went to sleep, I had pain there. I took an aproxen, and I was able to sleep through the night. Is it a quick fix? No, it was a fix that allowed me to sleep. Uh, but once again, you need a balance. You don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. You don't want to say the drugs, all drugs are bad, but you want to say minimal amounts for a minimal amount of time is what works for many medications, not for all. 
We have a caller for Dr. Zerber. By the way, uh, we're talking, as you, you likely have been able to tell, the familiar voice on public radio. We have Dr. Zerber Faster with us in studio uh, for the hour on Access Utah. Pleased to have him with us. He's in Logan uh, and Northern Utah for several events presented by Utah Public Radio. And uh, you can get your question uh, or comment directly to uh, Dr. Zerba by email to upraxcess at gmail.com or by phone to 800-826-1495. Kurt in Wellsville has uh, called us. Uh, Kurt, welcome to the program. Thank you. Dr. Zerba, I enjoy your show. Thank you. Thank you very much. I have a question for you. My father is um, just about to turn 80 years old, and he's been in phenomenal health. Uh, for that time, but recently he's uh, come across a problem. He's been taking statins for about 10 years for what I would call uh, mildly high cholesterol, and all of a sudden he started having severe muscle pains, Mm -hmm. Um, and they came on very quickly, and and his doctor told him, well, that's old age, and um, I'm struggling believing that, because of how fast they came on and how, um, I guess, um, in certain spots they are. And he uh, he stopped taking the statin now for a year, and that helped a little bit. And then recently his doctor put him on um, 20 milligrams uh, twice a day of cortisone, and that helped a bunch. Mm-hmm. But then um, he's reduced that amount of cortisone, and now he's back to having pain again. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you have any suggestions or thoughts on that. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, uh, I want to address the cortisone, and then I'll address the statin. Um, you really don't want to be on cortisone for muscle aches or pains, except for a short period of time. And the reason is that can lead to osteoporosis in both men and women and has side effects. So doing it acutely for a week or two is fine. Doing it for long term is not. There is something called PMR, polymyalgia rheumatica, where we do give prednisone, which is a cortisone for a period of time. And that can produce muscle pain and weakness. Uh, and I don't know if your father has that, but that is a an appropriate use of cortisone, and often PMR, that's the initials of it, will last for uh, three to six months. We taper off the cortisone and it gets better. And that is actually measured by a blood test called a SED rate. SED rate has to be elevated or something called C-reactive protein has to be elevated to make the diagnosis. So anyway, that, that I, I want to... I think he had that and did, and did not have that. Um, sorry, he had that blood test and did mm-hmm. not show positive. If, the, if it didn't show positive, he does not have PMR. So cortisone is not a drug he wants to be on. And yes, gets rid of muscle aches and pains and arthritis. There's no doubt it's a wonder drug, but it's a wonder drug which is a double-edged sword and the standard of care is not to use it. Short run week or two, use it. Beyond that, you don't use it. It produces other things such as diabetes, can elevate blood pressure, a whole bunch of other of other side effects. Now, getting to the statin question, uh, you can tolerate statins and then one day you don't tolerate statins. And, and it, the way you find that out is you go on it and off it. So you go on it for a month, then you go off it for a month, then you go on it for a month, off it for a month, see if that works. Sometimes changing the statin will work. So uh, Torvastatin, which was Lipitor, might cause you pain, but simvastatin does not. And sometimes taking the statin in a tiny dose every other day actually will give you the benefit of the statin if you've got elevated cholesterol and you're at risk without the side effects. So it's a dosage and it can be statin specific. Uh, but sometimes people lose muscle mass and, and that can be, you know, be the case. From your father's point of view, if he's off the statin, 
and he still has muscle aches and it's painful, then you've got to look and see what part is aging. And then you have to say, okay, it's aging. What do we do about it? And that's where getting a physical therapy consultation for him and getting him on a plan where he begins to use his muscles because he may be deconditioned and going to senior citizen where they have senior citizen exercise in senior citizen centers can be useful. Uh, And sometimes actually hiring a trainer, spending some money, hiring a trainer that works with senior citizens for maybe 10 or 20 sessions, just like we send kids and spend our money sending our kids to learn about soccer and they go to soccer camp and lacrosse camp and other things. Sometimes we have to spend our money on adults and send adults to camp because the deconditioning of muscles can cause muscle aches. That could be it too. But but the cortisone for long term, not a good idea. All right. Now, one of the things that I'd read about the, the um, I guess, um, you're at risk with statins is when you, when you exercise uh, very heavily or, or do, are very active, and, that, and that's what he is. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he, he wants to run a 5K. I mean, he's been running 5Ks, but he wants to, like, break his personal record this year sure. for a 5K. Sounds great. And so... That's but that's you, where he's but struggling you can, a little you can, bit is to see that on, degradation of his yeah. of his physical abilities. Yeah, you can and, be on sta- you uh, can I mean, be on stands the next. He does twenty five push ups a day, and <gasps> wow. he's he's struggling with with this, the shoulder pain mm-hmm. as well as playing golf. So he's like I say, he's very active. So he does twenty five push ups a day at the age of eighty. Right. Wow, wow, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So he's been a strong guy his whole life. Yeah, he. I just recently um, hiked to the top of uh, Yosemite, um, the Half Dome. I think that was last year. Uh, he was just in Sedona this last weekend and did a big hike. So, like I say, he's very active, and and uh, he's used to being able to do these things where with this acute muscle pain now he's not able to. But uh, But let me get this straight. So he's had the acute muscle pain for how long? Um... About a year. But he hiked to the top of Yosemite with the acute muscle pain. Correct, yeah. It's it's typically in his shoulder, which um, it, that's where he's, it's affecting his ability to do the, the push-ups and, and those types of things. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Golf. There, 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 is, <laughs> there, yeah. there is a suggestion. We do have joints that degenerate. Uh, and, uh, and if he's able to hike to the top of Yosemite... I mean, at 80 years of age, you know, and do other things like that. I doubt if this is a systemic problem. It doesn't. It doesn't fit with that. But it might be a problem with his shoulder, and he might have to alter his exercise regime. Either not do the 25 push-ups, or it may be that he can't do any push-ups. In other words, it might be there's certain things at the age of 80 he may have to give up, and if he gives up push-ups, he might be able to golf, or he may have to give up golf. But you want to look towards, before you do that, you want to get a physical therapist to evaluate the shoulder and look at the rehab of the shoulder, and then make a good faith judgment as to whether or not that rehab is going to make a difference. But if the shoulder is the issue, I wouldn't look at anything systemic. I would look at the shoulder and look at how to rehabilitate it, and then see. And if not, sometimes you do have to give things up at a certain age, and then you then you accent other things that you like. Clearly, your dad is active and should remain active for the next 20 years of his life because he's going to make it to 100, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we can hope. Yeah, it sounds like an extraordinary man. Uh, thanks for calling, Kurt. 25 push-ups. Right. I would call that extraordinary, no doubt. 
Uh, Kurt has called us from Wellsville. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, we just have a few minutes uh, left. I believe we'll probably have several questions left, Dr. Zarbo. We'll probably go over the, the top of the hour just a bit here. So I'll alert our producers to uh, put the playback machine in manual if they would. Um, this is from Pat. Pat says, my husband recently had joint surgery. He has, g- he has been given excellent care. With the current opioid concern, why did they feel the need to prescribe so many in two prescriptions, 60 of each drug, Norco and Tramadol, and then at a two-week follow-up appointment asked if he needed more? Why not go the other way and give him less, and uh, you must call if you need more? Thank you. That's Pat. The answer is they should be given less. That's the answer. The old answer, and that's the case, my wife had back surgery, and she she was given 60 oxycodone. And I looked at it, and I said, we're not going to fill this prescription. You don't need 60 oxycodone, because that has been the standard. And frankly, the standard has been that way for a number of reasons. A, they don't want to be called back. So, you know, don't call us back in three days and say, I need more. And B, it was just the standard. So the new standard of care that is being promoted in our state and promoted around around the country is you give a three-day supply of acute medication. And the new standard that I think is going to be adopted in many places, it'll be like a three- to five-day supply. And then, and then if you're going to give another prescription, you don't give more pills for 10 days. You give a second prescription at the same time, post-dated for three to five days down the road, for a second, a second prescription of three to five days. If there's still pain after 10 days, you evaluate the patient. And the answer is, this is not the way things should be done because then the opioids are simply there. They're sitting on the shelf. They can be used for other reasons. And, uh, and, uh, and you're right. There should be fewer meds. Mm. And, that's, and that's a change. That's a change in mindset. Mm. Physicians often take a while to change. And in the state of Wisconsin, the changes occurred because the state passed rules and then the medical licensing board passed rules. So it's what I would call a hard stop. Mm. We need that in the country. Mm. So are we, uh, my producers, are we okay to go over top of the hour? We're, we're okay. Right. We've got another question here. I want to make sure we get them all in for Dr. Zarba. We have this extraordinary opportunity to have him in studio with us on Axis Utah. Dr. Zarba, pastor from Zarba Pastor on Your Health. Here's a question. Uh, it is common for men, or is it common for men to become more emotional as they age? For example, being brought to tears by simple emotional interactions. Is this a hormone issue? And is there any type of therapy for someone who is in a position of interacting with the public on a regular basis and is often brought to tears? Well, first of all, uh, it's not a hormone issue. It's not not the same as, you know, there is no... Uh, there really is no male menopause, you know, where women all of a sudden stop making estrogen and they produce things. But the answer is, yes, there is therapy. Cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, can really make a difference. Because uh, if you're brought to tears, uh, whether you're a man or a woman, in the middle of interactions, uh, it, can produce, it can produce problems. You know, there are times that we want to show our emotion. Family, friends, and the privacy of our homes who may want to do it. There are times that we may be brought to emotion in a movie theater that's dark. We don't care about it because it's dark in a movie theater. But in interactions with people, if it becomes emotional, and especially if you're male, in our society it becomes emotional, it can can communicate things that you do not want to communicate. So the answer is therapy. Talk to your physician about uh, a psychologist that engages in cognitive behavioral therapy.